Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in sunny Los Angeles. Uh, right now, the store is open every day, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on weekdays and 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. on weekends. Um, we ask that you wear a mask and socially distance and sanitize your hands. And blah, blah, blah. You know the rules at this point. Um, and we want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to get out and do your holiday shopping early. You are welcome to shop in the store. You can also stop by for curbside pickup um, those same hours. And we also offer shipping on our website, skylightbooks.com. So get out there and make sure all of your loved ones are getting the best reads this year. Um, all right, so I'm excited today. We're going to have two authors in conversation about their books. So it's going to be kind of a, an equal exchange. Um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them in just a second. Um, but first, one last word. Uh, we do have a couple more virtual events coming up in December. Um, and I'm really, really excited specifically for you podcast heads to hear about the Desert Oracle launch event we're hosting with Dynasty Typewriter. Um, if you are not familiar with the Desert Oracle zine or podcast, um, go check it out. It is strange and weird and wonderful. It is desert lore. It is UFO stories. It is ghosts. It is mining tales. It's all the stuff you want from um, a Desert Oracle. And Ken Lane has put together a new anthology of a lot of his out-of-print zines and some new material, which we're going to be launching at Dynasty Typewriter on Sunday, December 6th. Um, so check out our website for tickets to that. You're going to get a signed book included with your access to the virtual event. Um, and Ken's going to be in conversation with Anna Merlin. So it's going to be really weird and conspiracy theory-minded and all kinds of all kinds of weird stuff's going to happen. So we really encourage you to check that out. Um, we would love to see you there. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce today's guests. So today we are hosting Tauno Biltstead in conversation with Caitlin Chung. Tauno Biltstead is the author of The Anatomist's Tale, and Caitlin Chung is the author of Ship of Fates. So let me read their bios, and I'll tell you a little bit about each of their books. Tom Biltstead has been a cab driver, squatter on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, mediator and facilitator, and a roustabout construction worker. <laughs> this is a great bio already. His fiction has been published in Rosebud Magazine and the Akashic Books Mondays Are Murder series, and his nonfiction has been published in World War III Illustrated, 
Wobblies, a graphic history of the IWW and perspectives on anarchist theory. The anatomist tale, being the confessions of an unwilling pirate marooned for a time on the shores of New Madagascar as a speculative historical fiction set in the decline of the golden age of piracy and drawn from contemporary firsthand accounts of pirate raids, slave narratives, and travel stories. Ooh, can't wait to hear more about this. All right, and then in conversation with Tano is Caitlin Chung. Caitlin Chung has lived in the Bay Area her whole life. She is a teacher, an expert eavesdropper, a fan of infomercials. Man, you guys are killing it with these bios. These are some of the best bios ever. Um, and is known to be a supporter of superstitions. She has on many occasions been justly accused of being a Luddite. She lives in Oakland with her husband and their cat. Ship of Fates is her first book. Uh, Ship of Fates is a coming-of-age fairy tale set against Gold Rush era San Francisco's Chinese immigrant community, of which Magnola of Forward Review said, with beautiful tempered language, Ship of Fates weaves history and lore into a captivating tale. Tano and Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Hi, thanks, thanks so much for, for having, having us. <laughs> Very excited <laughs> to be here. This is going to be really fun. So it sounds like um, you guys are both going to be reading from your books. Um, Tano, you're going to start us off and then you guys are going to have a little conversation and then Caitlin will read and we'll kind of trade off that way. Mm -hmm. that sounds that sounds great. I'm so excited to be here. I, I uh, This is my first book as well. And uh, I always had my eye on Skylight. I have some family in Los Angeles and get to visit sometimes. I love the bookstore so much. I'm so glad to be, you know, have the opportunity to be on the podcast here. So I'm going to start out the, the conversation just with doing a little reading. It's an excerpt, you know, towards the end of the book. Um, the book is like, it's a pirate tale that covers a lot of, you know, kind of different things. And it ends up in this community, um, kind of an imagined community in Central America. And I'm going to read a little bit about this community. It was the pirates that called it New Madagascar after hearing so many tales of the famous pirate haven on the true island of Madagascar, and that's how I will refer to it. But the place had a multitude of names, as the people there spoke many tongues, and no one of them owned it more than any other. Horacio told me he heard it called Palenque de Flores after the drooping orchids that were found in the crooks of trees throughout the vast swamp. Some elders called it Cocodrilo Sagrado in homage to the crocodiles that lurked in the dark waters there to flatter their lazy hunger and keep them from toothsome children. The Maroons who were absconded from slaving on English plantations had many names for it too. In the market, they called it Freeman for Freedman's Land but they also called it Starlight and Old Man's Swamp. They called it Whisper of Wings, for the place was infested with mosquitoes near the whole year round. And some of them called it Sikadwa, for the seat of an ancestral kingdom in the valley of Asante, inland from the western coast of Africa. There were visitors come up from Palmares in the country of Brazil, a fabled city of Maroons that had fended off every attempt to roust it from its lands. They called they call the place Quilombo de Pantano, which means war camp of the swamps in their hybrid of Portuguese and Ghanaian dialects. Decisions of any import were made in council meetings where every vested resident had the opportunity to speak. Curanderas and Obea men were granted a regular position on the council to weigh in on matters pertaining to the intersection of the invisible and the visible worlds. 
Those with skills in defense of the settlement and procurement of raiding treasures also had positions, and there were representatives from each small community that comprised the great mix of peoples found at New Madagascar and from its occupational associations, including the fish farmers, the weavers, and the house builders. Council meetings were a drawn out affair, but the people of New Madagascar are endowed with an easy patience and each speaker would be pointed and succinct, knowing that the murmur of their statements had to ripple through the assembled crowd from one language to the other until each craning ear had its fill of understanding. The council was held at a plaza on an island near the center of the swamp. When deliberations touched on matters of great importance, there was not enough room on solid land to hold the crowds, so the waters around were filled with rafts. At night, each bobbing craft was illuminated by delicate lanterns made from woven palm fronds. I went to sit at one of the children's fires where attention was more firmly on matters of an immediate nature. The tending of the fire and preparation of long and slender twigs to roast sizzling bits of fish. At the fire, there was a young Mayan girl, not more than eight years old, her hair braided with strands of bright fabric in the manner of her people. I marveled when I heard her speak with clear enunciation all the languages of New Madagascar, her tongue flipping easily from the chirps of Itza to the nasal tones of Crewe. She spoke English with a northern brogue, learned from a man from Liverpool, she said, with that same turn on the third vowel. Dazzled, I lay myself down by the fire to watch the pop and jump of the sparks. All around me, the black of night was filled with people, many of them craning to follow the discussion. I lay listening as the girl wove a series of tales in her small voice, half talking to herself, slipping back and forth between the many tongues at her command. Looking up at the starry sky, she made a story for each twinkling point of light, bestowing on each of them a name. She then proceeded to conjure names for the phantom peoples who surrounded the flicker of that far off fire where a council was assembled to share pan bread and capybara stew while plotting the course of their destiny. I watched the sparks of the cooking fire leap and disappear into the black swamp, which echoed with the throaty song of bullfrogs and the chatter and scrape of insects. The child went on with her storytelling throughout the night. Each character in the narrative was granted a history, had words put into her mouth, was ascribed an interest and connecting relationships. I was lulled into dreams at the telling, and as I drifted between sleep and wakefulness, I thought I saw shadows flit across the spaces between the stars. Gorgeous. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Caitlin. I was so glad that you picked that section, uh, especially because you start out with the naming of New Madagascar. Because I'll admit, I got your book and went, Oh crap, there's a new Madagascar. <laughs> and, and Googled it. And I admit geography is my Achilles heel. And uh, Googled it and was like, wait, there's no sign of a new Madagascar. <laughs> and uh, eventually got through to that part. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. And I love that section because it, it's so much about naming things. Conjuring names was a phrase you used, which is... Mm -hmm. A beautiful phrase and the naming of things being so much a part of exploration that uh, is such a huge or discovery a huge theme um, I'm, just, I'm glad that you chose that section 
Yeah, thank you so much. And it's it's interesting, I guess, like, as you're talking, like, I'm thinking about the way that naming sort of shows up in different ways um, in this book, which is like, um, there are different parts of the book where, you know, it's like the, the book's called The Anatomist Tale, and the character in the book is like looking at the world, you know, and, and in ways, it, he's sort of talking about the ways that different characters and different cultures and different settings that he encounters um, sort of engage with the world. And um, yeah, that naming that's in that section is like one way. There's also, you know, other parts where he's sort of reflecting on taxonomy and science and um, and and that kind of stuff as well. Um, it, it was really, I also think like storytelling is another element that's in that little section. And, um, you know, where, where the, the girl is kind of looking around at the world around her and thinking about stories and filling the space with stories. Um, and that makes me, you know, think of, you know, all the ways in Ship of Fates that um, you kind of, you fill all these spaces with stories and in very unusual and exciting, exciting ways. I, I wanted to, um, yeah, I was thinking about the, uh, I was thinking about the ship actually it was something that we talked about a little bit before um at, at when we were sort of prepping for this conversation and and you were kind of um there was there's this one image of a ship sort of stranded on the beach that's turned into a saloon in the book and i was curious to like use that as a starting point to think about storytelling and and sort of how that that image sort of came into the book and in your telling of the tale do you feel like talking about that a little bit Sure, I can point to exactly where the image came from was um, I was working in downtown San Francisco as a bartender and across the way they were excavating a huge plot of land to create a new trans base center. So they, for months they were just digging downward and downward and I served a lot of the construction crew and uh, they would come in and they would bring in all these things that they had unearthed and glass bottles and little weird relics of pre-1906 earthquake, which just demolished San Francisco. And uh, at some point in their, in their digging, they found a ship <laughs> uh, underground and they, they dug it out. And I just kept thinking about digging and reaching a ship that was completely beached. Um, which I guess was the origin of that particular image for me. Uh, it's just so bizarre. I mean, the plot that they were digging up is all landfill. So it's not terribly surprising that they would come across some weird stuff. But that's definitely where it, it came from. And ship is ships are something that we very much share in our, um, in our writings. Um, yeah. Yeah, there was, there were, how was that, did when we, so when we were in the process of, uh, of, I think we were both being edited at the same time, mm -hmm. and I remember, um, because our books came out, like mine, mine was in May, when was yours formally released by Lanternfish Press? Late April, I think we were two weeks Late April, apart. Right, so we were just two weeks apart, so I think that uh, our editor was working on, on the, uh, both of our <laughs> books at the same time, and I remember uh, they were saying like, oh, there's another book coming out, um, you know, that also has a ship in it. There was some kind of like back and forth where I was like, what's this other book? Um, and I was so like curious and uh, excited to sort of read your book and see, you know,
know, all the ways that you were inhabiting that space as well. I guess we should say also, we didn't mention that we both have books out with Lanternfish Press. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so we were both sort of uh, lucky enough to find a good home for each of our, you know, kind of very original, I think, um, books. And Lanternfish, you know, seems has produced a couple of really beautiful books, I think. Um, yeah, they're, I think they're... Their slogan is purveyors of the strange or uh -huh. purveyors of the unusual. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I remember there being something about, I, you know, going through it, I just kept finding so many similarities uh, in our books just told in such different ways. Mm -hmm. You know, you started us off talking about storytelling and both have narrators telling their own story. Mm -hmm. Although they're very different, uh, and we have ships and fires and storytelling around fires, which is just such an intimate and essential piece of human history. <laughs> um, how, how was it for you to like? So you know, in, in that element, I think there's also like elements where we both are using the process of invention. There's there's a little bit of speculation. So we're talking about this historical period in both of our books. Uh, you're talking about Barbary Coast, San Francisco, and you know this period of immigration. And I'm talking about the early 18th century and kind of what was happening in the Atlantic world, you know, uh, between mm -hmm. England and the Caribbean and Central America, you know, a certain aspect of it. Um, but I, I, you know, you also add this element of this imagined, you know, myth, this sort of origin story that connects, you know, the gold rush, uh, Chinese mm -hmm. Im immigration and imagines these sort of ancient roots and ancient connections. Um, can you, you know, or can you talk a little bit more about the process of invention in there and how, how you started into myth making and not just sort of telling a story about a particular time? Well, for me, myth comes long before history in my in my mind. I think I'm terrified of being confused with a history buff. I'm not. Um, but that being said, I just love the the origin story and and where things come from. And if you don't know, you make it up. Um, and so that's kind of where this began in in Gold Rush of where'd all the gold come from and I wanted to answer that question, but um, yours is so much, it, it's, it's filled with much richer pieces of history. Um, and I'm just curious, like how much research was specific to this project and how much is just pure town of interest? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, there was a lot of, I, it started with an interest. Uh, I did a ton of research for this book. And and so I'll pick up the uh, history buff load in this conversation. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> I really, I, there's something, you know, I don't know. There's some like imaginative interaction with history that happens for me. Like I can really, like a good sort of like, um, a book of history kind of can really transport me and become this imaginative space. So, so, you know, I was curious about a lot of different things sort of going into the book. I was curious about the origins of capitalism, the transition from mm. feudalism um, to capitalism. I was, I was, I was curious about this period of time, which was like the early 18th century um, and all the transitions that were kind of happening at that time. So I was reading a lot of stuff. I, I'd been curious about that in general. And then I, 
knew that I wanted to write a piece of fiction that sort of centered around this time and and centered on the maritime world. I, I wrote a I read a few uh, history books, one by Marcus Redeker and and Peter Leinbaugh, um, uh, and, and that that really sort of captured my imagination and talking about kind of what was happening at that time and and ways of understanding it. I was thinking a little bit about the the myth making piece, you know, where you come up with, um, you know, this way of connecting gold and you know San Francisco and your characters and you know create this sort of Chinese connection in going back to New Madagascar, which is kind of this invented place mm -hmm. that I invented. Mm -hmm. I actually was initially, so there was a, a there was a maroon colony. So maroons, just so people understand, there there's the, you know, it's kind of two words in maroon. So maroon, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, as a trope and like pirate fiction or whatever, you're gonna maroon somebody, you put them on the shore as a punishment or whatever. But marinage or maroons were also um uh, people usually um, people who were enslaved, usually people of African descent, black people who escaped from their conditions of enslavement and got into new or empty territory and were able to find ways to like exist and coexist, kind of create communities outside of the structures of slavery. So, so anyways, I was I was reading, I was just curious about that and how it related to sort of pirates and bandits and outlaws, mm -hmm. you know, in some kind of way, and. I wanted to place this maroon space, this kind of imagined maroon space um, somewhere. And I was like reading around that. And I read an essay, uh, a historical essay about a maroon colony, a maroon space that was in the Great Dismal Swamp in the United States, um, in the Carolinas, uh, bordering the Carolinas and Virginia. And, you know, so it was sort of hinted, the essay just hinted at, you know, the fact that there was this maroon space there, it was actually significant, people escaped into the uh, Great Dismal Swamp and set up, uh, you know, kind of lived there temporarily or set up small communities. And I was like, oh, I, I love that idea, the swamp, um, having lots of, you know, land, the possibilities that are, you know, sort of in a swamp, it's impenetrable, the possibility of, you know, creating a space. So I imagined this new Madagascar. But then subsequently, I, uh, I learned that subsequent research around the Great Dismal Swamp has established that it was a much more vibrant community than previously thought based on the essay that I'd written, or sorry, the essay that I'd read. Um, and in fact, it was a space where uh, uh, black folk uh, who escaped into Marinage Tuscarora Indians and white folk who, you know, left indentures or other things sort of came together in various ways over many years, mm -hmm. much more like the community that I'd kind of imagined. So, so just the connection between history and imagination and, uh, um, you know, possibilities, you know, essentially kind of really came up in the writing of it. There's something so rich about these accidental communities. I mean, the Barbary Coast being similar, this uh, crash of cultures that had never really been around each other before. And it was the first time that a lot of Americans had ever seen a Chinese or an Asian person in general. And it, and it, it developed because they were headed to the gold rush. Um, and it was, I mean, in itself, very mythical, but also debaucherous and grimy and kind of had that anarchy and lawlessness uh, that uh, uh, I think New, Mad New Madagascar might have started with, but became 
more civilized. I think you talked mm -hmm. a little bit about social constructs in there. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, the communities that are created out of that accident mm -hmm. <laughs> are just, yeah. Mm -hmm. So curious, that's great. That's a really interesting observation. Caitlin, I'm feeling hungry to hear a little bit of you, uh, of your, of your, of your book. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read a little bit for us. Of course. Um, I'm going to read a small selection that comes out about halfway through the book. Mm -hmm. The moment Juniper was born was the moment Jack and Annie started to fade away. They were opposite ends of an hourglass. When she learned to walk, their legs became heavy. The longer her hair grew, the shorter theirs became. The first time she answered, I love you, was the last time she heard it. Every new thing that Juniper learned was erased from her parents' memories. A thought for a thought, a word for a word, a grain of sand for a single moment. Now Juniper's hair was 14 years long, long enough to weave a fishing net fit to catch a whale, so long that most of the length perpetually dragged on the floor behind her and her parents were nearly bald. They hadn't moved or said a word in years. They deteriorated with each passing tide, their bodies thin and hollow, their skin like dust. Her mother was beautiful once. Her father had a softly sad and handsome face. His hands were worn but soft and sometimes twitched while he lay there, like he was reaching for something. For all 14 years of Juniper's life, they had lived in the small house at the edge of the bay with its one bedroom and an attic where she slept. The house was propped up on stilts on top of the sand dune and it was slipping down closer and closer toward the water's edge. The stilts reached 50 feet into the earth, sunk in holes that Jack had dug himself with only a trowel, but the sand wasn't going to let them stay. Jack and Annie slept in a small bed, perfectly in line with the front door. They lay on their backs, limbs tucked in tightly and bodies pressed gently together, their heads pointed to the shore. They were waiting for the house to slip all the way into the water so the tide would pull their bed out into the bay. Their house was to the north of the Barbary Coast where the dominant winds blew sharply past them. The Barbary Coast had grown, three, grown threefold at least, and at night the gridlocked parade of ships glowed as if it were made of live coals spilled over from the lighthouse. Far from that mass of ships anchored in the shallows, Juniper had always been on the outside and learned about life through a spectator's eyes. She did very little. She spoke to very few. She imagined that the distant Barbary coast was actually a hole in the earth where the world was swallowing itself, pulling ships from the wide sea into its open ruby-lipped mouth. She admired it like one might admire such a thing, which is to say, from far enough away, hell itself glitters like a goddamn showgirl. I'll stop there. <laughs> Oh, Caitlin, thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you. Really, really nice. I feel so sad for Juniper there. There's something about there's something about that 
that character sort of like being born and then, you know, her parents, you know, having this, you know, curse, you know, essentially mm -hmm. on them where they're kind of retreating from her as she's like moving into the world. Um, there's something about that that I find to be so sad. <laughs> did did you feel sad? Do you feel sad for for some of your characters? Like do you do you, um, do you get yeah. to feel emotional for them when you're when you're writing? Very much so. But you know, with Juniper, it's it's almost you know we find it sad, but mm -hmm. does she? You mm -hmm. know, she doesn't interact with many people, and it's probably mm -hmm. all she's known. But. Um, Part of what I wanted from her character, having grown this way, is it created the space for her to make up stories. It just keeps going back to storytelling and origin stories. And if there's no one there to tell you how things came to be, well, I guess you better just find an answer for yourself. Turns to that theme of story making, of like just kind of mm -hmm. the, the the thing of sort of the process of telling stories and the way we make the world with telling stories. Well, your stories as they develop are always addressed to a specific person by chapter. Mm -hmm. And I was curious to how those receivers of the stories came about and and how they played into the narrative. A really good question. There's there's something about the um, so I I I ended up to the the, the stories told in like a close first person, you know, essentially it sort of mm -hmm. follows. I mean, it is, um, and and in some ways I made that decision because it kind of allowed me to describe the world, but from one one person's sort of vantage point, um, and so I, I didn't need to be an authority on everything and I didn't need mm -hmm. to enter into everybody's experience. I could kind of like describe the world and kind of be in the world that I wanted to describe, but just from one person's, you know, point of view. Um, and I think that that really allowed me to kind of unfold and allowed for some, there's a lot of digressive, you know, mm -hmm. little mm -hmm. passages in there and stuff and to follow kind of, uh, you know, my own curiosity and the curiosity of the narrator and kind of looking at the world and thinking about how it's ordered and, and stuff. And, and it allows, yeah, it, it really, it allowed for a lot of unfolding. I felt like um, to be able to take that sort of narrative stance uh, mm -hmm. of being the narrator kind of like looking at the world. But like, I'm wondering, is that, is there something about um, like, how does that relate to the process of writing in general? Do we yeah. like where are where's our stance as as writers? Like, do we you know is there you know the, the sort of uh, stereotypical kind of uh, thing as the writer is that the you know, the person at the edge of the room like watching everybody and oh, describe? Oh, I mean, that's me for sure. Uh, you said you're an expert eavesdropper in I your am. bio. I it's on my resume. Uh -huh. it's, it's a point of pride. Uh, I love. I love being the observer, the eavesdropper, mm -hmm. the watcher. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably socially where I feel comfortable, but also from a writing standpoint where I feel comfortable. Um, you were mentioning writing in a close first, and I, I chose an a omniscient third. Uh, even though somebody's telling their own story, it's an in, in omniscient third, which I think was really a decision to go along with the fairy tale aspect. Um, fairy tales and tradition are that wide camera third 
person point of view. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, your of speaking of observation, the settings particularly in your writing are incredibly detailed and incredibly vast. And I is that how you see the world? Like, do you walk somewhere and like have a sweeping panorama ca camera view where you take everything in in parts like that? Like, it's just a very interesting. That is, I mean, I would say um, perhaps I aspire to take in the world in that kind of way. Like, <laughs> like I feel um I don't know like as you ask that question like I think about like I have a I have a very minor amateur meditation practice right mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not super disciplined I'm not really <laughs> you know involved but but I do sort of like cultivate meditation sometimes and just kind of like reflecting on the different ways to be in whatever experience a person is in like whatever experience we're in and and there's some kind of way that that writing allows me something about being inside of a character or thinking about a, a perspective mm -hmm. um, allows for the possibility of opening up space in some kind of way. Um, so maybe it's aspirational opening of space, but it really delights me to hear you kind of that, that in a way that's kind of how you experienced parts of the story, mm -hmm. uh, that they have this like sense of spaciousness. I, I'm curious how it's been for you that, that I wanted to ask you about being read because I'll just say from my own experience, it's been awesome and really um, an exciting experience to be able to interact with people and get some kinds of feedback, you know, from distant people and some people, I don't, you know, whatever, just, oh, I read your book and I like this or that about it. And, and the interactive piece of being read has been really nice for me. How, how is it for you? Deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I'm bashful. I suffer from imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, and just, I, I'm one of those, I write in a vacuum. I'm, I'm not good at seeking a writing community. I wish I was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really wish I was. Uh, but I'm definitely that kind of private hoarder type of mm. writer so i think to get it out there and to know that it's in hands of people that i don't know is very bizarre for me mm. and it, it oscillates back and forth between uncomfortable and like wow that's really cool but i think the uh discomfort usually <laughs> outweighs <laughs> the other <laughs> hopefully i'll get used to it one day <laughs> Well, I mean, whatever, everybody approaches the problem from a different direction, you know, yeah. no, not the problem, but the issue or the thing, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a huge achievement to, to have written a book uh, and, uh, you know, it's just like really a, a sort of, and, and have it sort of be pushed into the world. It's, it's been really exciting for me. And yeah, and, I uh, mean, I just count both of us so lucky to have mm -hmm. been you know our we're partners spring 2020 mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. what a time to release a book <laughs> but yeah you know we're both kind of experiencing this first step into it together mm -hmm. and clearly having very different experiences mm -hmm. with it. <laughs> <laughs> i have really noticed like in in ways around a, a, returning to this idea of sort of being read and kind of what it's mm -hmm. been like and getting feedback from people 
Um, it's been really exciting to um, hear different people's very different impressions and different ways of like mm. living, living in the story in some kind of ways, the characters that they identify with, the, um, you know, kind of see the ways that they understand the, uh, the course of the story, the arc of the story, mm -hmm. even some of the intentions and feelings of some of the characters, not hugely different, but, but a little bit different. And then I had one person who, who was like, oh, it's like you're writing a, a, you know, novel from early in the days of writing fiction. <clears throat> and in a way, um, you know, he's referring to like before certain like, you know, tropes or whatever around fiction were there. And I didn't really do that intentionally at all. Um, I, <clears throat> I was just reading a lot of material from the time. I was reading a lot of material from the early 18th century, including some fictional stuff and a lot of like, not like I said, you know, travel narratives, uh, you know, travel logs, slave narratives, uh, you mm -hmm. know, pirate stories, and other things like that. So these narratives that were, that people were telling about their experience at that time. And then somehow that sort of came out in the language and the structure, but it wasn't, it wasn't in a way that, that I was able to I, I can't claim credit for it. You know, it's like it came yeah. out, but it wasn't like, well, I've really planned this all yeah. out. It all worked perfectly. Um, was there anything, like what about emergence for you? What about, what did you find emerged in the process of writing? Um, or, you know, what stands out if you think about that? What surprised you? Well, first I think is it being called an immigrant story. Mm. I don't, it, it never occurred to me. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have such a, a fairy tale, a myth, an origin story kind of view that that's just how I saw everything. And then it, it repeatedly was called historical and an immigrant story. And I kept thinking, did they read the right book? <laughs> and it just, it was so not, I just didn't associate my thought process that way and it's like well of course it is it's about a different culture coming to america for the first time and mm -hmm. um that was very surprising to me mm -hmm. <laughs> I, it probably shouldn't have been but it was uh it just kind of caught me off guard i was i was ready for the the magical realism part for the fairy tale part i was not ready for the history part or and i think that i have I have experienced it where some readers come fully from this, like, oh, what a great retelling or representation of history. Mm. Like, oh gosh, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> and then I have, <laughs> there's other people who come from it from a very much mythological point of view, which is where I think I personally positioned myself. Um, so that's been quite an experience. It's to almost feel like, somebody read your book differently than you wrote it has that happened have you had that experience where like um yeah I think that 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 the the sort of story that I told about somebody sort of reflected like being like oh you've gone back to the origins mm -hmm. of the novel and being like uh, no, I didn't. Really? <laughs> yeah. I did? Okay, yeah, great. That sounds really smart. Did it on purpose. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Gold star. Um, <laughs> no, and then I had somebody, I recently spoke with, with you know, somebody who had who'd written it, who really identified, they said about the narrator, you know, kind of at the end, they said, oh, he was, he was innocent. 
and mm-hmm. and uh, oh he was innocent throughout like like not innocent of the specific crimes because he is charged with crimes in in, sure. in the book or there's this implication that he's charged with crimes but innocent as like as a you know as somebody who wasn't sort of interacting with the environment around mm-hmm. him in some kind of way and i never would have thought i never th- thought had that thought like oh he's an innocent person or he's not like like he's kind of like not engaged there's ways that there's there's moments when i like him and don't like him uh the narrator there's there's Hmm. moments there's moments when i feel like um this kind of remove um that he's sort of telling the story from um and and also just his remove in terms of experiencing the things that he's in like his his Mm -hmm. his lack of ability to kind of commit to anything Mm -hmm. um I find to be, you know, um, not a great quality, you know, there's moments when (laughs) when I don't really, you know, and I don't see it as innocent either. It's like, it's it's also sort of not engaging, but somehow the person I was talking, I was like, oh, they, they identify with that character. They, they themselves feel that they're innocent and perhaps being, you know, dragged through life from one event to the other. Um, And, you know, just, just was like a reflection on the ways that, that people, engage with stories differently and kind of like read themselves into them i like i will argue for being read caitlin because (laughs) and the reason is is i feel like i am convinced that there's something co-creative in Mm -hmm. like even though the writing process is so solitary and interior you know what i mean you know what i mean you know (laughs) (laughs) very Uh, well uh, but but at the same time there's the that something about like being read or getting the code out there and you know having somebody sort of read it and interact with it um feels like this act of co-creation mm-hmm. um that 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 is that that's something that i think you know really is there really happens yeah well then i would have you know maybe known it was an immigrant story before mm. it was <laughs> out there <laughs> could have been more prepared <laughs> you're like what really <laughs> You just go with it. You smile and nod and say it was definitely on purpose. Definitely. Absolutely. Exactly. Wow. You know, another gold star. Yep. Mm-hmm. Racking them up. Exactly. Now, you mentioned innocence, which it never occurred to me while I was reading your, your work. Yeah. It never would have occurred to me. This it, idea of innocence. Yeah. I, I, uh, me, absolutely not either, you know, but that was what this person, you know, that's, that's what they, that's what they reflected. That was something that sort of touched them. Uh, you know, and again, it was like their own perspective or like what they were bringing to the reading of the story or, you know, what they were trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I was happy to hear it, you know, um, that, that they experienced, you know, again, it's like if somebody's able to engage in something that you've written and and if it's able to create a little bit of imaginative space like inside their head like mm-hmm. caitlin somebody <laughs> reads your book and then their brain you know sort of comes up with images and they think about things and they kind of feel some of those feelings like i felt sad reflecting on juniper earlier and 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 her you know i, I in that that particular sort of arc where she's sort of taking care of her parents and everything, mm-hmm. uh, I found like really um, sort of moving in a way. Uh, I don't want to end this conversation without talking, well, I, you know, we have a little bit of time, but I wanted to remember to bring in a uh, toy or Madame oh. Toy in your book because I was, um, yeah, I was just, I was, I was just very curious 
uh, to there's a character in your book uh, who I didn't realize was a historical character necessarily, and I read something recently um, and was like, oh wow, this this story of this uh, you know sex worker immigrant uh, from China who uh, then became like a real political player and very influential in the development mm -hmm. of San Francisco. Uh, she was just called Madam. She was not based on anybody in particular. She's just, uh, she was a sex worker that pulled herself up and um, was a ball buster. And then I was just reading about brothels, <laughs> as one does. Uh, mm -hmm. Just reading about <laughs> brothels in, in the Barbary Coast time and came across her and was like, oh my God. Uh, so she kind of Madam became her over time uh, in, in editing and, and I ended up naming her Madam Toy, which was, I didn't want it to be too direct of a, like I didn't want to make it as though I had like, um, I was afraid of writing about her in a way that would be interpreted as factual, which is not necessarily the case. Um, but I was reading about her and she would she would represent herself in court. <laughs> so there's a really? Chinese immigrant woman and she would go, to, she would represent herself in court. And I was just thought that was so cool. Wow. Ballsy. So uh, ballsy. Totally. She was a boss, Madame Toy. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where she, where she came from. She was always a madam, but she didn't really have her edge until I came across a toy. Um, what a find too. Yeah. Fascinating. I love that, that, that the character kind of emerged and then, you know, later you kind of realize that there was, you know, some historical basis for this character. I really mm -hmm. love that Genesis. I think that's like wonderful. And what a great story. I, I did it on purpose. Of course, right? of course you did. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant thank move, Caitlin. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh was there one origin that you can point to for anatomist tale the origin i had like i had it was like pulling together strands you know i okay. I, I had some interests um i did write i i'd sort of like yeah was reading stuff you know a little bit that i described like in this wor world of you know a particular period of history or whatever and i wrote I wrote a short piece that was almost like a extended free write um, where I sort of came upon the voice and I later sort of developed it, but it was like the voice that was in the book in some kind of way. I just felt like, oh, okay, this was the voice. I think I'm going to do something else with this. And then, yeah, and then I had, I had, I was really curious about sort of describing this the space of uh, imagining the space that became, you know, called New, Mag New Madagascar in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so I was curious about that. I had, I knew how I wanted to end it. The last sentence in the book is almost the exact last sentence 
that I knew I wanted to end the book with before I'd even really started writing it. I was like, I had certain images in place or certain ideas of things. Uh, I had kind of like an arc that I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 you know, even like, yeah, sometimes I have like a phrase and I'll, I'll be like, I'm going to construct this chapter around this phrase or, <laughs> or a title or something like that. I'm like, oh, okay, I really like the way I'm thinking about titling this chapter. I'm going to construct the chapter around it. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, the language in Anonymous Tale is so tight. It is so intentional. Um, does it come out that way? Or like, how much do you work on, like sentence by sentence, every word belongs there. It is there because you put it there. Mm -hmm. How? It's neat that you noticed that. It, it, it took, no, I mean, it, I will say I was really surprised because I had been looking to, you know, I was trying to, it takes a long time to publish, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're lucky enough to publish. Um, and I had basically given up on the idea. I was like, well, I'll keep sending this book out because that's what you do. But I literally sent it out I, to over a hundred agents, competitions, small presses. And I went to the Brooklyn Book Fair and saw the Lanternfish like booth there. And um, I was like, oh, I kind of, I like them. Uh, maybe this is a good, they like strange things, you know, <laughs> maybe, this is a, maybe this would be a good fit. They have attractive books. They like weird books. I think this will be a good fit. And then, um, and then they ended up accepting the book. And then there was the editing process. And I was kind of concerned, like, will I be able to slip back into this, this voice if I have to do some mm. rewrites or whatever? And I was surprised. So I'm returning to your question about like the voice or sort of right. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to be able to come around to that and be able to uh, write, to enter into that voice and that sort of like slipstream of, of storytelling again, like four or five years after I really previously, you know, worked on the book. Um, in terms of the precision or it, it was a lot of work. I mean, I spent a lot of time, yeah. you know, uh, and, and, and I knew, I knew that I was kind of finished with the editing process when I started adding things back in. So I, uh, I got to a point where I'd like sort of pared so much down and then was like, oh no, I actually need that story element or I need that thing. It was just really trying to be really um, just like put a lot of pressure on it or something like that. Not pressure, mm -hmm. but just kind of like, yeah, be really re not refined, but deliberate, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that it really came out in the editing in terms of that, but it wasn't yeah, to some extent, I was able to enter into that language and and kind of do that. It's in it's impressive language. Just the the intention mm -hmm. of each word mm -hmm. is is very clear. Mm -hmm. The editing process. Yeah, how was that for you? <laughs> um, well, actually, you know, I uh, sent it out to Lanternfish. Um, it was it was tough. So Ship of Fates is a novella, which mm -hmm. is not um, a very mainstream accepted form. Mm -hmm. um, so it was definitely a targeting of small presses. And I saw their website and was like, oh, I think this is like, this is where it would fit. And I submitted it and, and they got back to me and said, you know, we kind of like this, but we think it needs work. We just work on it and resubmit it. And um, it had been a few years since I had 
worked on it and I remember thinking like oh <laughs> that <laughs> seems like a lot of work <laughs> I had you know moved on to different ideas but you don't pass something like that no up uh, I, the editing process pretty much circled around the edit ending I think I wrote mm -hmm. four five really 18. oh it was so hard I, it was so hard to end uh -huh. um, and they were extremely helpful and they helped me realize you know we talked a little bit about people seeing things in your writing that you didn't mm -hmm. and they kind of helped me realize the the heart of it um particularly being it's a story about women right um and you know it's just i just hadn't thought about it in those terms mm -hmm. and um it's just there we had a conversation about the ending and it was the book is about women and I thought, oh my gosh yeah <laughs> and it and then the ending just kind of revealed itself it just i needed somebody to kind of check me on that um hey this is what your intention was it's like right uh, sure <laughs> again so. you're like yes definitely exactly Absolutely. the whole exactly. time was, i knew that <laughs> exactly that was the majority of the editing process for me it was like how about this ending no how about this ending uh, no. uh. <laughs> but it was good it was a good experience to um to just keep trying different things you know i think beginning writers especially you get attached to something that you wrote um in a way that it feels um it feels wrong to go back and change it it feels like you're betraying it in some way like you're betraying the the art of it because it's not what it's it wasn't your first idea so it was kind of a good exercise for me to keep look at how many ways i can write the end of this story this is probably the only one that works but look at how many ways i can write it and it was a good it's just a good writing experience to have Oh, interesting. I'm really curious about, so maybe, um, yeah, I guess like emergence, like how, how, how this, just the, the idea that you were saying that in interacting with Lanternfish, you sort of realized or really sort of um, became clear that it was a story about women in, in mm -hmm. some kind of way. And then you were saying also that, uh, uh, you know, previously some other people pointed out that it's an immigrant story. And I'm just like, okay, so you were in this story and it's so evocative and you were just kind of telling the story, but it sort of came out of you in some kind of way, but you weren't necessarily so systematic around it. No, it was very haphazardly done. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it just, it's how it came out. I don't know. I, I, I almost wish I could say there was more intention in, in my writing, but it's pretty accidental. <laughs> well, it's a lucky accident. Yes. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Maddie. Hey, um, thank you both so much for, for bearing your all of your experiences with these debut books. I know it's the weirdest possible time to publish a book, um, but I'm so glad these are both in the world. They're fascinating and so fun. So thank you for sharing your work with our listeners today. 
Great. Thank you so much for hosting us and for hosting this conversation. It's it's really uh, awesome to have the opportunity to um, be in some kind of way part of the Skylight community. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and I hope you know. I hope we can actually host you in person for your next books. So, gotta keep writing <laughs> for me. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we go, is there anything else you want to? talk about that we missed or any other sort of projects you're working on you want to share with our listeners? Not for me. <laughs> no, no, just, uh, just, um, you know, I guess like, uh, keep reading, you know, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a good time. There's so much going on in the world and like being able to kind of engage and cultivate our interior spaces is really important. And re reading is one of the ways that we do that. Amen. Here, here. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and I want to, I want to say something about um, Caitlin. I was thinking about the story of the ship in your, in your book being <laughs> uncovered. And I actually, um, I have a friend who's a radio reporter at KQED and she did a whole story on the buried ships under San Francisco and why they're there and how they came to be that way. It's fascinating. Um, oh, so cool. yeah, I'll put the link in the chat, but for anyone listening at home, if you'd like to check this out, um, just search KQED wire ships buried under San Francisco and you can find out <laughs> more about that history. Um, it's really cool. So I, I'm so excited to like get my hands on your book, Caitlin, and, and read more about this ship. <laughs> All right. Well, Caitlin and Tano, thanks again. Um, lots of gratitude, lots of love uh, and uh, take care out there. And we hope we can, you know, bring you back to Skylight in person someday soon. Thank you, Maddie. We appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you All again. Right. Catch you on the flip side, everybody. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.